Hi, this is Wayne Berryman from Berryman Carpets. Come in and check us out. We're at 1070 Del Monte Avenue in beautiful Monterey, California. This is a family-owned and operated business. We started in 1978. We're very honest. We have a tremendous following, and we would love your business. We sell hardwood, luxury vinyl plank, vinyl, and, of course, carpet. Call us at 831-373-7759 or go to our website, BearmanCarpets.com. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to this edition of the Dwell on Truth show. I'm Dan Bodwin. And I'm Brenton Powers. And today we're talking about cannibalism. cannibalism. <laughs> Yay. Well, not really. Not cannibalism. really. That claim was used to, to attack the early Christian church. <laughs> there are things that Jesus teaches that people would love to twist into terrible things like cannibalism. Yeah. And they tried to do it not just to the early church, but before that, it all started on this day, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was in Capernaum, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, and he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Yeah. Literally or Liter- figuratively. Yeah, that, that's another good topic to talk about. Yes. You know, when is the Bible speaking literally and when is it speaking figuratively? Because if you don't understand where those lines are, you're going to have a lot of trouble really understanding Scripture. Yeah. But I don't think it's something people need to grumble about. or to give up Christianity over. In fact, I think it's something that if they rightly understand it, they'll find very nourishing for their soul because we're not eating human flesh. We are receiving Jesus, who's the author of life. And we'll get into it, but there's a deep spiritual meaning that if you're not open to spiritual truths, maybe this show isn't for you. But if you are, then this show could change your life. Not this show, but the words of Jesus that we're about to read. Amen. Amen. So let's go ahead and start reading those words, shall we? So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, you can open to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 40 through 46. And we will be reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV version of the Bible. Yes. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Mm. I just want to start with the first verse, verse 40. There's going to be some repetition from last week, but what we didn't talk about last week was this call to look to the Son. As Jesus said, this is the will of my Father. So, if you've ever asked, what is the will of God for me? Well, here's one verse that tells you, look to the Son and believe in him and you'll have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, Jesus says. Yeah, what 
what does it mean to look to him if we can't see him? That it is through Jesus Christ and through just looking to him, nothing else, no works, no additional things that you have to add, no religious ceremonies, look to the Son and be saved. When you look on Google for a solution to your questions, you are searching, you are looking for somewhere to place your hope, to find a solution to your problem. When we look to ourselves, thinking, I'm going to solve my own problem, then you're looking to yourself. But if you look to the Son, you're saying, I think Jesus has the solution for this. I think He's the one that I need. I think I'm going to put my trust in Him, and my hope will be found in Him, and He's going to work it out. I may not be able to solve this problem by just figuring it out. I need to look to Jesus and ask Him, what do you want for me to do? How can I overcome this problem of death, really, is the yes. is man's greatest problem. That is. And Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. If you look to me, I will give you eternal life. What a great promise. Amen. Yes, it's all about where we place our trust. And as you said, it's naturally we put our trust in ourselves and try to solve our own problems. Mm. We need to place that trust in Jesus. So looking to Jesus, not only as the Son of God, but mm-hmm. as Lord, as Savior, yes. as your very God. Amen. That's it. Okay. So verse 41, you had something you wanted to say about these following verses. Yeah, so it says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? That was a real stumbling block um, Hmm. for them, because this is a natural man, someone who had grown up in their midst, that they were familiar with, and they knew his family, and they knew his relatives, and now he's claiming to come down from heaven. Hmm. And this really does cause um, consternation for a lot of people. But particularly for our Muslim friends. Clearly, Jesus is a man. He is still God and man. So how can he be both? Is that even possible? Scripturally, it is. Does Jesus explain how he can come from heaven? He doesn't really address that question. No, not in this one. It is addressed elsewhere in the book. I mean, I think of uh, chapter 17, I want to say verse 5, right in there, where it says, I have um, I completed the work that you sent me to do, mm-hmm. and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you mm-hmm. before the earth began. So that's talking about, you know, who he was and what he was and sharing the Father's glory, you know, before he came down to earth. Yeah. So that speaks really powerfully to what he means by this. Mm-hmm. But their question, it's more of an argumentative type of question that they don't really yeah. want to know, oh, how is that possible? Explain to me the mysteries of the incarnation. They're more asking because they have this familiar Familiarity that has bred contempt. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Jesus was raised in Galilee, and not in this city, but some of the people from his city used to say this to him. Mm-hmm. How can he say these things? Because they thought he was just a normal person, but he is not just a normal man, not a mere man. He is God. Yeah. But Jesus doesn't feel the need, apparently, to explain to the critics, to their satisfaction, how he solves this dilemma. No. He just he goes on and he says things that cause even more questions, maybe. It raises even more questions. Like when he says in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What does that mean, Dan? Well, that's a can of worms if we want to go there. Well, I believe the Scriptures. Do you believe the Scriptures? I do, absolutely. And if Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, does he mean that? Absolutely. Absolutely he does. Apart from the work of God the Father sending his Spirit to draw us to himself, um, we're not able to come to him. Mm-hmm. It also um, says here, and I will raise him up on the last day. If they're drawn to the Father, 
they will be raised up on the last day. Now, whether you come from an Arminian perspective or a Calvinist perspective, which we did talk about a little bit, for someone who is being drawn to God, for someone who feels that pull, that that desire to come to God and to trust in Him, that's also something that we can find a, a great amount of, of hope and, mm-hmm. and, and assurance in that. And that's a good thing. And looking back in my testimony, I shared it a couple weeks ago on the Flight 1080 show, mm-hmm. God was drawing me to Himself when I was 17 years old in ways that I didn't feel drawn before that point. Oh, yeah. So, all the glory goes to God for saving me. It wasn't that God was hiding, and then I had to take the initiative and go go find Him. Yeah, yeah. He was revealing Himself more and more to me in a way that was attractive and drew me. I do, however, think there was a, a responsibility I had to respond to that. God initiates, but I think we respond. We'll maybe get into that a little bit more, talking yeah. about human responsibility. If God is drawing you, do you need to do anything, or is it just automatically you're on a conveyor belt? Yeah, I don't think it quite looks like that either. Yeah, this is an area of, of, of challenge and mystery. So mm-hmm. why don't we, I think we're about time to go into our next section. Why don't we do that and okay. see what else the scripture has to say about that topic? Sure. So let's move into the second section, which actually I think starts in verse 45, mm-hmm. when Jesus says, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Mm-hmm. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I like the idea that um, Jesus quotes from the prophets. He affirms the Old Testament, um, and he also brings out a truth that I, I've seen. It's beautiful when this happens, when people are taught by God directly. Mm-hmm. And he says, when, when people come to me, it shows that they have learned from God the Father. I think it's neat to see new believers when that light bulb turns on. Yeah, It's like you've been preaching to them for a long time, maybe, and then all of a sudden they read John 3.16 and the light bulb turns on and they're like, haven't you ever read this verse before? Yeah, I yeah, have yeah. eternal life. <laughs> like, yeah, I've been quoting this for you. What made the difference now? But I've seen this also on the mission field in Ukraine. Oh, yeah. Like, I remember we had this club for English speakers, people who are learning to speak English, and we used it as a way to help them speak English, but also mm. share the gospel. Amen. And w- without fail, some people would get saved every semester that we did this. And there was this one girl who is just like night and day, the person that she became. Mm. And then she went home and read portions of her Bible and would come back and share with us insights that she had. And she's like, is this right? Is this true? What I'm reading, what I'm understanding? And we're like, yeah, that's cool. God is teaching you about him and about a relationship with him, things that even we didn't teach her. Wow, that's amazing. And just, it, it is a reminder that when we talk about the Christianity and studying and coming to know God, this really is a, it's a spiritual endeavor. Um, it's something that we really do need God's power and, and assistance yeah. if we're going to understand His Word rightly. And it's really a relationship with God Himself, mm-hmm. not a man-made uh, religion Mm-mm. that is man's attempt to describe God. No, it's God revealing Himself to yes. people. And when He does that, the natural and the supernatural response is to come to Him, to believe in Him. So that's what needs to happen. You need to be born again as the Father reveals to you Jesus. That's how it happens. Mm-hmm. And that next section, that next verse kind of talks about that. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from the Father, and he has seen the Father. And Jesus really is the speaking of God, the revelation of, from God of himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. 
I like verse 48 because it's nice and short. Yes. And I think it's a good topic sentence. It could be a good podcast title. Yes, it could. I am the bread of life, Jesus said. If you're one who struggles to memorize scripture, the shortest verse is actually Jesus wept. Yes. But this is a good one to memorize too. John 6, 48. I am the bread of life. Yeah, it's a great short statement, but what does it mean? Let's see how Jesus defines it. Because there's a group of people listening to him that will try, it seems like, they're trying yeah. to take the worst possible interpretation of his words. They really are. And when they when you look at verse 47, it should be pretty clear that he was moving from a straight statement into an analogy to help them understand it. It shouldn't have been that confusing for them. Yeah. So let's read that passage, verse 48 through 51. Yep. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. If you take it literally, can seem like he's teaching cannibalism. Yeah. I think that last part is the most helpful part for me as far as understanding what Jesus meant, because he says, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So just thinking of how Jesus gives his body on the cross, he says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. Mm. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. So this this fits more naturally with the historical way that Jesus fulfills these words mm. by going to the cross for us. And the, the picture of sacrifice was one that the Jews should have been prepared for. Oh yeah, that was something they were very familiar with. You know, I mean, every male member of uh, the Jewish society was supposed to go to Jerusalem once a year for, mm-hmm. the, for the Passover, and they would have seen the sacrifices. They should have immediately made the connection, mm-hmm. only they didn't. Yeah, I think that can be a problem in especially ritualistic churches, even, mm-hmm. or even the Jews today going to the Wailing Wall in, in Jerusalem. They're, you know, praying and they're rocking their head back and forth. My microphone is going quiet and loud because they're just ritualistic yeah. rather than understanding the meaning for the ritual. Why was there so many animal sacrifices? And if you don't look at it through the lens of this is all a foreshadowing of the one great sacrifice mm-hmm. that would cover them all, a once and for all sacrifice of Jesus's own body being given for the world, then yeah, you, th- you just think, okay, I guess God's into repetition and not meaning. You know, some churches are stuck in their old ways. Why do we do it this way? Because that's the way we've always done it. <laughs> yeah, I got to dig a little deeper than that. I mean, because yeah. there's there's a purpose behind this. It's not random. It's not ritualistic. It's not, let's keep doing the same thing because we don't know any better. Why are we doing this? What's the meaning behind it? What's the depth of there? Mm-hmm. In some ways, they had probably been, as a nation, doing this for so long. They kind of lost the purpose behind it mm-hmm. other than, well, God told us to do it, so we're going to do it this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they should dig a little deeper. Yep. And I like to see words repeated in this section, this word life or living or live, it's repeated multiple times. So the emphasis is not on drink blood, eat flesh, no, no. but it's on receive life. There's life in me. When you receive me, you receive life. Maybe even if it stumbles you to think about eating and drinking, just know that those terms Jesus used in a previous passage, we talked about this last week. He says, whoever comes to me will not go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. So, eating and drinking is analogous to coming to Jesus and believing in him, Mm -hmm. receiving him. Yes. To the Jews, to take this literally would be offensive.
offensive. Mm -hmm. But they shouldn't have been offended here because he didn't mean it literally. Now, you come from a Catholic background, Daniel. Yes, I do. I would like to ask, do Catholics believe that the communion elements, the bread and the wine, literally become the body of Jesus? Yes, they do. So they think they're drinking literal blood and eating flesh. Yes, and and there's more than that. As a Protestant, I I can't wrap my brain around that. Yeah, and and I'm not going to say that I was a Catholic scholar because I wasn't and I'm still not. But yeah, there's a different meaning. And I think this even happened in in the early church to some extent. There was kind of debate there. What exactly did Mm -hmm. Jesus mean there? How can we honor what Jesus taught and be really careful with it? I think that the Catholic Church has taken that too far, where mm-hmm. you know, if you go to a church, you'll see the little golden box up on the altar in the back, and that's where they keep the bread, because they believe that you know, once they've um, gone through um, the process of blessing it, it actually becomes physically the bread of Jesus, so they mm-hmm. want to keep it safe and locked up and things like that. <laughs> and It's a desire to show honor to God, and that's a good thing. But it's totally missing the point. Mm -hmm. It's totally missing this as a very clear analogy to Jesus providing spiritual nourishment. You know, they, they they still take it literally, and and they miss really the blessing that it is to receive that spiritual nourishment from God, rather than just a wafer in your mouth. Yeah, and I think it goes even further, and it becomes a gospel contradicting issue. Yeah, when they say that this is how you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior mm-hmm. by ingesting the wafer and the wine, is that not what the Catholic Church teaches? I know the Orthodox Church does teach that. Yeah, it is. And, and more than that, it's considered like another sacrifice. Like hmm. Jesus is freshly sacrificed every time a church does it, communion. It, it's an unbloody sacrifice. It's not the same as the sacrifice on the cross. But yeah, it's as if Jesus was being re-sacrificed every time they conduct Mass. And Doesn't that, the Bible kind of forbid that idea that yeah. they're re-crucifying the Lord of glory? Correct. His sacrifice is once for all. He died once yeah. for all. Yeah, exactly. So that's a problem. Once again, not trying to pick on our, our Catholic friends. Yeah. I My whole, once on my family is Catholic, and I love them to death, and it's not the people that we have a problem with, it's just the doctrine. It's the tradition. Yeah, again, the do- why do yeah. we do this? Well, that's how we've always done it. A lot of Catholic theologians would dig deeper into that, and they would have more, mm-hmm. you know, more explanation than what we could possibly go over yeah. in this show. But yeah, we don't believe that that's consistent with what God has said in his word and the purpose of it. Yeah, we're interpreting this spiritually. And so when we take communion, we do it as a memorial. Jesus said, when you you eat this bread, when you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. That's what he said at the Last Supper. Mm -hmm. And that would be about a year later from where we're at now. This is around the time of Passover. I had a Bible college teacher who was, uh, he still is, an apologist. I don't know if you ever heard of Don Stewart. I know the name. I haven't followed his stuff very much, but I know the name. Well, I took the Gospel of John from Don Stewart, and we had a lot of interaction in the class, and he asked the students, how do you know what in the text shows us that Jesus here isn't speaking literally about consuming his body and blood? Well, one of the answers,
answers that I remembered clearly that someone gave, and he said, yeah, that's the right answer, that Jesus didn't offer his arm to them to chew on. This was not happening at the Last Supper. No, This no. was not happening. It, he was pointing forward toward the cross, and on the other side of the cross, there was no like, okay, now it's time to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Yeah, yeah. He just, it's really not even connected to the Last Supper here. No, it's and not you, yet. You could maybe make a connection when Jesus institutes the Last Supper, but this is before that. So. It is, and I think that there's something of progressive revelation here too, which is something that's a, a theme throughout Scripture is at a later time, he will clarify some of that information. Yep. We definitely see this here, so I don't get the Jews walking away. So verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? That's a not an unfair question exactly. I mean, there should have been some connection with the sacrificial system and stuff like that, but even for the disciples, the Last Supper hadn't happened yet. And so I think God is kind of pointing at what he's going to do in the future, but hasn't really explained it yet. You started reading verse 52. The question is posed, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're already beginning to dispute among themselves. Mm, Grumble. And Jesus, he doesn't back down. He doubles down. He doesn't water it down. Even though he is speaking spiritually and they're taking it literally, Jesus allows them to hear what he means, but not everyone is going to hear what he means. No, not everyone is. Yeah, you're right. He does double down. And it seems like through this section, it almost gets more difficult and more challenging for them to ex- as he goes. Should I go ahead and uh, keep going? Yeah, if you can read 53 yeah. through 58, all that Jesus said on this yeah. topic. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever." Yeah, again, I know I've said this before, but I think the best way to understand this, and the reason why I take it spiritually, is because in verse 35, he said, He who comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But it just continues the picture of Jesus saying, You need to receive me. You need to, I need to come into your life. And he kind of mixes the analogy in verse 56 Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. There's an intermingling of our lives with. With Jesus when we become Christians. So it's it's hard to really distinguish where do I begin and where does he begin yes. to, uh, to my life. He is my life. I'm not him. I'm not Christ. I'm not saying no, that. No, no, no. Of course not. There's a distinction. But uh, when you receive food, and maybe this is the picture that he means, when you receive food, whether it was an animal or a plant, you're receiving life from that source. And Jesus is the source of life. And that's what he means. Mm, it is. It It makes me wonder, though, how much of this did he really expect them to understand at this point? Good question, because there are admittedly some difficult things. If you just took them at face value, Mm -hmm. drink my blood, eat my flesh, yeah, um, that's troubling. It would be even for a Jew to think about consuming human flesh. 
What are your thoughts on this section, Dan? Yeah, it, it seems like, like you said, that Jesus is purposely saying things he had to know were going to really disturb the Jews. Um, Eating flesh, I mean, maybe if they were in the right tribe of Israel, you know, if they were in the priestly tribe, then the sacrifices after they had been sacrificed, some of that would be given to them for food. But whether it was a sacrifice or not, the idea of drinking blood was abhorrent to the Israelites, where they were expected to drain all of the blood out of an animal before they were going to eat it. And it says um, elsewhere in Scripture that that the life of the flesh is in the blood, and and so that's they key would, right there. Really Say that is. again. The life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood, which is interesting because you know it, it's kind of like if you look at both sides of this. If it's an animal, you want to drain the blood out because you don't want that animal's life to be in you. Mm. But then when Jesus comes and sacrifices himself, he says, "You do need to drink my blood," mm. and we knew do need to take Jesus' life. In into us, mm-hmm. you know, because his his sacrifice and and some of this they couldn't really have understood yet because mm-hmm. the Last Supper hadn't happened, the crucifixion hadn't happened. It's it's the almost resurrection like the resurrection hadn't happened. hadn't happened, and and it's like so many other places in Scripture where. God is giving us truth that we're not capable mm. of understanding yet. He's laying a foundation, and then as time goes on, it's clarified what he meant. Yeah. So, we didn't talk about this earlier, but I kind of want to go there. Um, John talks a lot about receiving Jesus, mm-hmm. and Jesus gives this uncomfortable analogy of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. How do you feel about the phraseology, accept Jesus into your heart? Would that be better or worse than just using what Jesus <laughs> Jesus says here. Yeah. Because I know some Calvinists object to that phrase, and I haven't heard you invite pe- tell people to accept Jesus into their heart. No. Is that biblical? Uh, <laughs> Is that what Jesus means? No. Well, I mean, there, there's so often when you when you come with these kind of catchphrases like accept Jesus into your heart or the sinner's prayer, um, it depends on what kind of meaning you pour into it. Mm-hmm. But I think we do much better by not coming up with these new silly kind of cotton candy statements about who God is and what we're supposed to do with him. And the more we can be consistent with the way mm-hmm. God, I, this is this is what I think is important. This is not man's idea about who God is. This is God revealing himself. Mm-hmm. If he chose to write down his words and describe it a specific way, maybe we should stick with that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's times when Jesus speaks literally, and there's times when he speaks figuratively. Mm-hmm. If we're going to use figurative language about what it means to receive Jesus, um, then let's stick to the biblical. I agree. Yeah. Stick to the biblical ones. It's it's hard enough to explain what Scripture means, much less to explain Christianese, what yeah. that means. So, yeah, I think hard. there's power in the gospel commands and yes. how we're supposed to respond to the gospel, and that's why we preach repentance and faith, because we see that over and over again, not only from John the Baptist and Jesus, but also the apostles in the book of Acts. All of the epistles, they talk about faith as in trusting in Jesus and repentance as in a changed mind that leads to a changed life. Those are the clear commands. When we emphasize too much the analogies of receiving, how you receive Jesus, exactly how does that work? When I was a little kid, I pictured like a little mini Jesus stepping into my physical heart valves (laughs) and (laughs) took things very literally. I thought a little Jesus was in my heart. (laughs) 
that's how I pictured it, honestly. Yeah. When they explained to me, you know, you need to pray and ask Jesus to come into your heart. Well, is that what Jesus means? And Revelation 3.20 is sometimes used as a proof text for that. Mm -hmm. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, and they add, into your heart, then I will come in and I'll sup with you. Except that's not the context. He's he's talking to one of the churches in the book of Revelation, Mm -hmm. and it's not referring to salvation. He's talking to people that are already Christians. I don't want to be too nitpicky. I know some of my friends do use the phrase, you need to ask Jesus to come into your heart. Well, if the person understands, like the disciples here, that only Jesus is the source of life, and somehow he needs to come into me, I'm not going to say that that's a a heresy, but it can be a false hope if you just get people to repeat the prayer without really trusting in Christ and repenting, Jesus, come into my heart. That's really what it comes down to. There's no guarantee that he actually did. People need to understand the meaning behind the phrases. We the, the biggest danger that we have yeah. is you know assuming that when we say something like "ask Jesus into my heart" or have them repeat a sinner's prayer, that they really get what they're doing and they're just not treating it like like a Harry Potter spell. You know, it's say not the words a magic. Poof, it, you know, doesn't <laughs> no, work that way. It's not magic. No, it's not magic. It's it's not magic. It all has to do with the intent of the heart behind that and uh, humbling yourself before God and having yeah. Him change you. And I would just say, you know, if that's you, if you're a Christian and you use that phrase, maybe just try a few times saying it the other way. Say, repent and believe the gospel. And see if people don't understand that. Well, if they don't understand the word repent, then let's define it. Yes. Rather than use words that are hard to define. It's an important topic. And we don't often talk about it, but Dan and I, we preach the gospel and we're in agreement on how to give the invitation. Yes. Um, Although sometimes I feel like I'm still learning and how to do that. But I think we can do it from any text. So if we can look at this text and just say, hey, whoever comes to Jesus and believes in him will have him in them and he'll and you'll be in him. There's this mystical union that we have mm-hmm. with God through receiving Jesus. However that works, however you phrase it, make sure that's the reality in your life. Yes. Help me to move on from that, Dan. <laughs> where are we at? Uh, we can go back to the more comfortable stuff about eating <laughs> flesh and drinking blood where we were talking before. <laughs> more comfortable. Yeah. You, you cannibal. Yes, I know. <laughs> What's the path out that Jesus gives here, he doesn't really give us an escape route other than referencing how how he is better than eating physical bread. Yes. He compares um, the people in Israel who ate the manna that fell from heaven. They all died again. But whoever feeds on him, feeds on the bread of life, will live forever. It's an interesting contrast because earlier in this chapter, they were asking Jesus for that sign. And they were talking about Moses sent the bread down from heaven. They were still looking for the physical. Yep. So he's making this contrast contrast between the physical and they still are focused on that and the spiritual. You know, so there's physical bread and then there's spiritual bread. We need the spiritual bread, not the physical. Now, you say we don't need the physical, but man does not live by bread alone, That's but true. by every word that comes from the mouth oh, no, of God. You, oh, absolutely. We do need we do need physical provision and yes. and it's very clear from from this chapter too that God provides both. Yes. He really does. I mean, the feeding of the 5,000 probably the biggest miracle that he ever did. 
apart mm-hmm. from the resurrection. Mm-hmm. But so, the physical only gives you life as long as you're alive in this that's body. Right. That's right. The spiritual gives you life forever. Yeah, the man in the wilderness wasn't going to give them eternal life. The feeding of the 5,000, which was really, you know, probably 15 or 20,000, including women and children, um, that fed them for a day. Uh, that's not going to give them eternal life. So he's really offering something bigger and saying, stop looking just at the physical. In Matthew chapter 6, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? It's really about provision from God. The crowds are still chasing after the physical things when God is offering them something so much greater, isn't he? Yep. Yeah, so why don't we move on to the next section? I think we're going to be going from, uh, let's start in verse 59. Can you read that, Brenton? Yeah, as mentioned in the beginning, this is the context. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Two more verses. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him from the Father. And after this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So sad. It is. It really is. Jesus said a lot of difficult things, and the Bible says a lot of difficult things, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It does. And he does. And I think, I like how he explains in verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. He's not purposefully driving them away. I think he's showing that they were never really with him to begin with. Correct. Now, it's interesting Three times in this section, John calls them disciples. He says many of his disciples heard it, and knowing his disciples were grumbling. Mm-hmm. And then verse 66, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That seems to go against the definition of disciple that we use, and that is a Christian, someone who is born yeah. again. Yeah. But at this time, I don't think they were born again. I think the, the born again experience happened at the resurrection, like Peter says in his letter. Yeah. We've been born again, or or begotten again to a living hope by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that it wasn't possible for them to be born again at that point. It's dependent yeah. on on the, those final acts in Jesus' life. That Holy, when you're born again, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe that happened for any of the disciples until John chapter 20, where Jesus revealed himself as being raised from the dead, and he taught them from the scripture all things that were concerning himself, and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Yes. And so, that's when the light bulb turned on for them, when when they were born again, according to what I believe. Yeah, I I would agree with that. It's clear from Scripture that there were times of particular...
particular, I guess, filling of the Spirit that you see from some of the prophets and different people in the Old Testament where the Spirit was working few peop- through people, mm-hmm. um, but as far as the Holy Spirit indwelling people as mm-hmm. he does for Christians. No, that doesn't mm-hmm. seem to be something that happened. We don't see that in the Old Testament, do yeah. we? Yeah. Jesus said in John 14, I'm getting ahead of ourselves here, but he said the Spirit of truth, he taught about the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. as being with you, and he shall be in you, he said to the yes. disciples. Yes. So at this point, uh, you have two groups of disciples, one where the evidence is that they're going to turn away as soon as Jesus says something hard that they twist into something that they can't accept. Yeah. Or maybe it reveals that their hearts are not ready to receive it. And then you have the other group, which will be the last section we're going to look at, of disciples that remain with Jesus. And I often wonder, like, what's the difference between those who, you know, like that parable of the seed where it gets planted in the shallow ground and it springs up, but then it quickly withers because it has no root. Mm. I think there are certain that probably people... probably fits this group, huh? Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They're, they're kind of fair-weather friends or fair-weather <laughs> followers. Yes. <laughs> they're, they're disciples no more. They're yeah. apostates, maybe, is a word for it, where they've turned away from following Jesus. Were they really saved to begin with? God knows their hearts, and all we can see is the profession of faith and the direction of their life. If they're continuing to follow him, then they're a disciple indeed. Even in John chapter 8, I quote this verse a lot, to those Jews who believed in him, he said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference between a true disciple and someone who's just called a disciple. Yeah, I think it's it's a discussion worth having because we know that God is consistent in everything that he says. And of course, we, we differ a little bit on our views, you know, is somebody who is brought to faith 100% kept? Or is it possible for him to, do we even want to go down that track? That's okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's verses that seem to indicate all believers have eternal security. Mm -hmm. And then there's other verses that seem to warn true Christians against falling away. And I don't want to believe that that's possible, but I need to take those warnings as if it is possible. You know, it's, it's him that keeps me, but I have a responsibility in it too. And there's between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, I think there's a healthy tension there. There is definitely a tension there. Um, And even though I come down very strongly on one side there, um, on the side of eternal security or as a Calvinist perseverance of the saints, Mm -hmm. there are other verses to be contended with. There Mm -hmm. is other verses to be considered. And honestly, I think that that tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is probably one of, if not the most difficult one in Scripture. Yeah. Because it's very clear that God has control over everything that exists. He created everything, etc. But man is responsible for his sin. So if God created mm-hmm. circumstances or even allowed circumstances where those things could happen, why didn't he do it differently? And some people would say, well, then it must be God's fault. Neither of us would go there. No. Um, yeah, you, we, we're not saying God is responsible for our evil, for no, no, our no, sin. Not at all. Of course God not. doesn't tempt anyone. But what helps me get out of this dilemma is 2 Timothy 2.19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. 
quote, the Lord knows those who are his, mm-hmm. end quote. And here's another quote, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Indeed. In yes. that, I see both God's sovereignty and God God knows the answer to the question, were they really saved? Are they really born again? Are they going to continue? Um, we can only see, are they going to continue? Are they continuing? And if anyone is professing to be a disciple, if it says, let anyone who names the name of the Lord, if, if they say, Jesus is my Lord, well, then prove it by <laughs> departing from iniquity. Yeah, I mean, the call is real. Mm-hmm. The call to repentance is real, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we could we could go back and forth all day about, you know, the the exact means and, and internal workings of God's sal- salvific process, but the thing is, if you want to be in right relationship with God, you've got to repent. You've yeah. got to turn from sin. You've got to turn to Christ. You've got to trust in Him alone. And and whether you're you end up as an Arminian or a Calvinist or something floating in between, that's <laughs> where I am. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. It's it's not always it's not always um, easy. You know, dividing lines. Um, but come to Christ. Turn to Him while yeah. He's given you time. Uh, turn from your sins and turn to the Savior. Yeah, and how we're getting into this and how we're going to get out of it is the words of Jesus, he seems to, for me at least, he shows both sides of it. Mm -hmm. And he also, being God, he sees straight to the heart. And I didn't notice this verse earlier, but in verse 64, Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe. I think that's really pivotal. That's critical. Mm -hmm. It is. A disciple who doesn't believe, by our definitions, that's a contradiction, isn't it? It is a contradiction. Right. It depends on what meaning you pour into that word, but yeah, right. I mean, when you say disciple. But then there you have the explanation, this is why I told you, verse 65, that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So, just trying to understand this myself, he seems to be saying that um, about these people who left, they're not coming to me because the Father hasn't granted it to them. That and is, he, And a, he's okay with them departing because they're not being drawn by the, the Father. That is a... Am I understanding? Standing that right? I, th- I think you are. I think you are. And that's that's a tough passage, isn't it? Now, I don't think that means double predestination. Now I'm getting into the theological yeah. terms. Whatever the case, the Bible does say, make your calling and election sure. Amen. If that's you're right. not sure where you stand, make sure that you're right with God by repenting and believing. And then you'll know that you're chosen by yes. Him you're, and that you are being drawn to Jesus. But if you don't repent and you don't follow, so that's on you. That's your responsibility. Learn from the Father and come to Jesus. God's responsibility, he's going to save everyone who he's chosen. I don't know how all that works, but that's how it works. So make I, sure you're yeah. whether you're chosen or not. I, I would say even more. I would say he will save anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith. So yeah, the question is, have you come in repentance and faith? There you go. Yeah. Okay, so leaving this group of people that are departing from Jesus, yeah. let's move to our final section of chapter 6. Hallelujah. Yes. We thought we would never get there. <laughs> Verse 67 through 71. Let's see how the true disciples uh, respond to Jesus' hard teachings. Mm-hmm. Dan, would you read that? Absolutely. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have 
have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I stand corrected. Mostly true disciples. There was one who... (laughs) There was one. It was a a betrayer, but this was going to fulfill prophecy as well, the fact that Judas would betray Jesus. Spoiler alert, if you've never read the Gospel of John. Yeah, and Jesus knew it and planned it that way and picked him, knowing Mm -hmm. that he would be a deceiver and that he would turn him in. That's That's deep, since we've already spoiled the the ending, (laughs) because the religious Jews, the Pharisees, were jealous about Jesus, Mm -hmm. and they could only find him because one of his disciples gave up his location on the night that he was betrayed. And (coughs) by the betrayer, one of his close disciples, I don't know how close he was, he wasn't one of the inner circle, but he was sitting right next to Jesus at the Last Supper. Yeah, and he had spent, what, three and a half years traveling with him, living with him pretty much day and night, yep. except for those, you know, a couple of times when they had been sent out two by two. Yep. You know, that's that's a pretty close relationship. And so, the disciples didn't have a clue, though, who Jesus was talking to. Imagine no. you're sitting there and Jesus says, haven't I chosen you, the faithful disciples that stay around, except one of you is a devil. Yeah, there, well, there might have been like a <gasps> is collective it me? gasp, you know, who is it? Yeah, exactly. One of the other Gospels records when he says this, uh, predicts this again later at the next Passover, that one of you would betray me. They all asked, is it is it I? And that's interesting mm-hmm. that some of them had, or all of them had that question, am I the one that's going to betray him? And uh, Peter leaned over to John, who's leaning on Jesus's chest at this Last Supper, they're all reclining, and uh, he says, ask him who it is that's going to betray him. And John does. And he's, mm-hmm. and Jesus says, it's the man who dips this bread with me. He's the one that's going to betray me. And he dips it, and he gives it to Judas. Yeah. Satan enters him, mm-hmm. and he departs from there. Then he goes and turns Jesus in. A whole bunch of other things happen while Judas is out betraying Jesus. The disciples think, oh, he's just going out to get more food they for the feast. They still didn't get it. They asked, how can we identify him? And he said, this is how you identify <laughs> yeah. him. And they look at what he does and say, so Jesus, which one is it? Our treasurer. Like- who's yeah, been stealing from the money bags. Yeah, exactly. They didn't know that either. Yeah, man, oh man. Oh boy. So, but I take comfort in the fact that Jesus chooses disciples. Yes, he does. Jesus chooses, and that's called election. It's a deep doctrine. Uh, Ephesians 1 talks about how we've been chosen mm-hmm. before the foundation of the world. I love that passage. Um, that's beautiful. And that those who he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also uh, justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified, yes. which we don't see yet happening. We're not no. in our glorified bodies, but God sees it as good as it is done. Yes, Jesus here sees these disciples. He knows who's going to stick with them and who's not to think that, oh, I've got to disciple this person and encourage them. If they backslide, they need to go after them. And you think it's a mistake? You mean to, to go after people like that? Yeah. Well, to, I, to I, think I, that some of it depends on us? It's comforting <sighs> to know that it depends on God. It really is. I mean... But that doesn't mean that we we can just sit back and say, oh, well, they, another person backslid. If God wants them, he'll go after 
with them. No, I, I think we need to be able to separate it. You know, even though it's not up to us, that doesn't mean as disciples, as followers of Christ, that we shouldn't do everything in our power mm-hmm. to to go after that person and encourage them and try to disciple them well and call them to repentance and all those mm-hmm. other things. Because that is the way that God keeps them, is through the, the community of Christ, the followers of Christ. Oh, yeah. He yeah. uses us. Not that it's us that's saving or keeping anyone, but we believe it's it's Christ working in us and through us. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's a gift and a blessing to yeah. us. And bottom line is whether, you know, whatever you believe about the salvation process, you know, even if Jesus has, even if God has predestined everybody yeah. precisely from the beginning of the world, and we know that he has, I mean, if he's done it in, in the Calvinist way— yeah. He still, the primary means that he has of bringing people to himself is through other people, you know? So I, I'm i going to ask this because we're already going there. We're talking a lot about Calvinism <laughs> we today. We are, we are. And I know I have friends that they would want to ask you, Dan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a good friend who's a pastor even. And he, and he wonders, if you're a Calvinist, then why do you even evangelize? Because if God's going to save them... He's going to save them, but explain that. Yeah, um, I and I've actually thought about that a lot. If I'm a Calvinist, why why evangelize? And number one, obvious, because God has commanded us to, and mm-hmm. that should be enough reason by itself. Um, number two, because once again, God God not only determines the ends, but He determines the means, and mm-hmm. the primary means He uses is through His children going mm-hmm. out and preaching the gospel. And three, if there there was a an opportunity for me to be used by God in the process of bringing somebody else to salvation. Why would I not want to be mm-hmm. involved in that? What an honor and a privilege that Ex- He would exactly. choose to use us. Exactly, and mm-hmm. so I mean, this it's an amazing gift from God to us. No, He doesn't need us. He never needs us. He chooses mm-hmm. to use us. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, those would be my three answers. That was almost like you prepared for that. Good job, Dan. <laughs> well, it's it's the kind of thing that it's an important question, and I've really thought about it. You know, yeah, how... because a lot of people they reject Calvinism because mm-hmm. they think there's no answer to that. Yeah, and to hear an answer like that, it's like, okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, it, we're not removing human responsibility here. In fact, no. I think we're 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 supporting it. We're not denying free will completely either. Although some Calvinists will, maybe we don't want to go there. <laughs> well, people need to make a choice. Mm-hmm. The question is, what enables them to make that choice? Somebody still needs to choose to come to Christ. Yeah, you know, and it's Christ that sets you free to yes. make that will that make that choice. So yeah, there's mysteries in it, and we're never gonna to solve this uh, debate's been going on for what 500 years oh longer than that Cal- how uh, when did calvin well, uh, write his uh what was his calvin's institutes and yeah. and that was about 500 years ago but you can go um all the way back to augustine back in the early days of the church and yeah. these these conversations were going on it just wasn't framed quite the same way and for the record do you agree with everything calvin taught i don't agree with anything <laughs> with everything anybody taught other than Jesus. So when you say you're a Calvinist, <laughs> it doesn't mean you hold to all of his anti-Semitic views. Or I haven't even read Calvin's Institutes, on his wars, to be honest or, with you. Okay. I mean, I've... Me neither. I, no. I've, I've read samplings of it, but what, the, a lot of the doctrine that we call Calvinism, it really 
is Spurgeon <laughs> or its other uh, famous preachers that yeah. kind of uh, took Calvin's idea of God's sovereignty and versus man's free will mm-hmm. and kind of fleshed it out, made it more, uh, I don't know, cool? No. <laughs> On the well, internet, there's a lot of cool preachers that are Calvinists. Uh, that's true. For, for me, it wasn't any of that. For me, it was being in a church with a pastor who had started out as an Arminian and a Calvary Chapel mm. pastor, and the church did an in-depth um, an in-depth study of the Book of Romans, and that's what came out the other side of it. Interesting. And and I have you know, so I came to my understanding of Calvinism purely or primarily, at least, based on my understanding of scriptures. And obviously, not all my understanding of scriptures are correct. Okay. And I'm like anyone else, just like you, still trying to struggle to be as accurate as I can in understanding them. Yeah. Now I think the question that pe- listeners are asking is where do you stand Brenton are you <laughs> you're not a calvinist are you yeah. arminianist and i don't really want to be labeled i don't really yeah. want to squeeze myself into one of those two categories i want to hold to everything the bible teaches amen and yes. hold what seems to be paradoxical teachings intention with faith in both sides and and I don't think the church should divide or needs to divide over this I mean I, I can understand when some people are being pushy about one side or the over the other mm-hmm. then that can be divisive and I'll you know I, I'll take that person to task if they do that but yeah, Dan thank you, you thank you for holding your Calvinism with an open hand of fellowship so well absolutely I'll shake your hand here indeed in the studio. indeed and we, we don't have to agree on everything but the thing that we do agree on Mm-hmm. is salvation, right standing with God, comes through repentance and faith in Christ alone. And we want to call you regardless of what you believe on these things or whether you have no idea what we're talking yeah. about at this all. Could yeah, this could be heads. way over some people's heads. This could be way over some people's heads, and that's okay. I, the, the biggest, I think, takeaway is there are, there are some tensions and there are some mysteries in there that even mature Christians struggle with. And I think even non-Christians would be interested yeah, to hear how yeah. we, uh, we wrestle with these different topics. Yeah, and it's okay to wrestle with truth of God's word and not always understand them completely. But one thing that we can understand, salvation by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, come to him while he's given you time, my friends. Because he's given his life for you. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead three days later, and he appeared to more than 500 eyewitnesses and to all of his disciples and opened their eyes so they can see the truth. Amen. If God's opening your eyes, if he's drawing you to Jesus, come. If he's revealing to the eyes of your heart that you need to look to the Son so that you may live, then do that. Make sure that you are not only called, but chosen by choosing to receive Jesus as he is. Amen. So, that's our show for today, Dwell on Truth. We finished chapter six of John. We did. Yay. Yay. So, we're going to go into chapter seven next week. Unless we have a surprise, because next week is Thanksgiving. One of these days, we may have a special show with highlights from the Flight 1080 show. Yes. Yeah, we've got enough highlights to go for probably yeah. a year of just doing that itself. So tune in next week and be surprised what yes. the content is, either John 7 or a special show because of Thanksgiving. All right. Well, thank you for listening and thank God for giving us his word. And I just feel led to close in prayer. Yes, please do that. All right, let's do please. that. 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for revealing yourself through the person of Jesus Christ and by the inspiration of Scripture and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, for those who you are drawing to yourself, that they would rightly respond to you today to repent and to call upon you to be their Lord and Savior. God, I pray that whatever they pray, we know that you see straight into their heart, whether they're believing in you and you know their mind and their future, if they're going to continue to follow you. Pray that you would be using this program to make disciples, to produce Christians that will reproduce other Christians. And it is my heart's desire, Lord, that you would use this show to win souls and to uh, draw people to Jesus. For your glory, most of all, God, we, we want all of this to bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.